The first of my posts to the Facebook group about Book 6, Chapters 3 through 5, was a focused summary. In Chapter 3, we are given the opportunity to eavesdrop on the conversation of three women, two Parisian ladies and a countrywoman from Rem, as they hasten their way to the Place de Greve to enjoy the spectacle of seeing a man pilloried. The countrywoman pulls along her chubby, snot-nosed son, who is carrying a cake that he eyes with pained and drooling affection. It is to be an offering of charity for the old recluse in the Tour Roland. The conversation we overhear among these women is little more than petty squabbles, as they compete with each other over whose city has the finest criminals and who has better inside information about where the Flemish ambassadors dined. When their bickering is interrupted by the sound of a tambourine, and Gervaise, the Parisian, tells Mahiette, the country girl, that she must come see the dancing gypsy, the former is surprised when the latter grabs her son by the arm, takes off running, and shouts, Heaven preserve us! She might steal my child! When questioned as to why she, like the old recluse in the rat hole, has such a horror of gypsies, she somberly begins the terrible tale of Paquette La Chanfleurie. Paquette, she says, was a beautiful girl who came from an honest family. But her father died when she was still a mere child, her mother was unfit to earn a living, and the winters were bitter cold. So, her beauty being her most valuable asset, she was eventually forced to turn to prostitution. Five years later, her mother had died, and her beauty had faded. She had no bread in her cupboard, and no one left to love. She was, quote, alone, alone in the world, pointed at, hooted after in the street, beaten by the police, mocked by little ragged boys, unquote. In her shame and disgrace, despised by all, she gave herself up to longing for a child, and prayed that God would give her one. She was blessed with a beautiful little girl, and the child became an object of delight and of worship. Paquette grew handsome again, and revived her old iniquitous trade, so that she might buy her baby all the most extravagant finery. The baby's little pink feet were a source of particular and endless wonder, and she made for her a pair of tiny pink satin shoes embroidered with intricate stitches. She, quote, would gladly have spent her life on her knees, putting the shoes on and off those feet, as if they had been an infant Jesus, unquote. Then, one day, a band of gypsies roamed into Rem, and camped on a hill on the outskirts of town, and offered to tell people's fortunes. These fortunes, which inclined toward the favorable and flattering, became all the rage, and mothers flocked to the gypsies for the opportunity to learn that their precious child would be captain, pope, or emperor. Paquette, too, was seized by curiosity and vanity, and was gratified when the gypsies admired her child's beauty and foretold that she would one day be a queen. Eager to relate her good fortune to the neighbors, she left her sleeping baby briefly unattended. When she returned, the child was gone, and nothing was left behind but one of her dainty pink shoes. She flew down the stairs and into the streets, 
desperately seeking her child and wildly crying for information about her whereabouts. During her absence, a neighbor saw two gypsy women carry a bundle into a room and leave it there. But flying into the room, she found that instead of her dear child, there was in her place a hideous, blind, lame, one-eyed monster. The archbishop would later take in this devil child, exercise it, bless it, and send it to Paris to be exposed as a foundling at Notre Dame. The next day, Paquette received with mute horror the news that, two leagues away, someone had found the remains of a fire, some ribbons that had belonged to the child, drops of blood, and goat's dung. Two days later, she disappeared. Mahiat speculated that she had drowned herself. Arriving at the pillory, and having forgotten all about the old recluse, these three gossips are reminded of their task when the little boy asks if he may now eat the cake. They make their way back to the desolate cell. Their eyes grow moist at the sad sight. There they see an emaciated, wan, wrinkled old woman in sackcloth, crouched upon the icy cold floor with her head upon her knees, appearing neither to suffer, to feel, nor even to breathe. Noticing that she stares with a serious and fixed expression at some mysterious object in the corner of her cell, Mahiette puts her head through the iron bars to get a glimpse of it, and discovers that it is a little pink shoe. The old recluse is Paquette Chantfleury. Overwhelmed with pity, they try to rouse her from her stupor, so that they might offer her the cake, some hippocras, and a fire to warm herself against the bitter cold. The old recluse refuses it all, for why should she want comforts that cannot also be given to her baby? Then, hearing the gypsy girl on the pillory, she stretches her arms through the bars of her cell and cries with a voice of death for her to be accursed. Across the square, a crowd has gathered around the pillory, awaiting the spectacle of its victim. At last he appears, and in a strange reversal, the very man who had the day before been hailed and acclaimed as Pope of Fools is now, before the same public, to be cruelly punished. Making no resistance, he suffers himself to be buckled, bound to the circular plank, and stripped of his shirt and doublet. Only when the torturer's lashes begin to fall furiously upon his shoulders does he show any strain or resistance. At the conclusion of the hour of torture, the additional hour imposed by the deaf judge begins, and as he is turned on the platform, the public gives vent to vengeance, hurling at him in turn each of their private spites. Rebelling against these taunts and struggling in his fetters, Quasimodo darkens with rage against this vicious crowd, until he sees among them a savior riding in on a mule, his adopted father, the archdeacon Claude Frollo. Yet, when Claude Frollo recognizes the prisoner, he casts down his eyes, turns abruptly, and spurs his animal away. Having been whipped, mocked, and abandoned, Quasimodo gives way to despair, and cries to the merciless crowd 
for water. But, quote, not a voice was raised around the sufferer except to mock at his thirst, unquote. After his third desperate plea, the crowd separates, and from their midst, the gypsy girl ascends the platform. Quasimodo believes that it was for carrying off this very girl the night before that he is being punished, and he is sure she approaches him so that she too can have her revenge. But instead, she pulls out a gourd and gives him a drink of water. It is in the very moment of her kind charity that the old recluse from across the square calls down curses on her head. Esmeralda descends from the pillory, pursued by the voice of the recluse. Quasimodo is unbounded, the crowd disperses, and the three ladies start for home. On their way, Mahiette discovers with consternation tinged by amusement that Eustache has eaten the cake, and she concludes with pride in his impudence that he is sure to be a soldier. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Three Worthy Gossips. One of my favorite aspects of these chapters was the insightful and hilarious characterization of the three worthy gossips. Often, when I read well-drawn characters, drawn well in the sense that their essence is exposed with incisive efficiency, I have the feeling, I know that type. And yet, describing that type in a form plain-spoken and explicit can still be difficult. That's how I feel about the gossips. I'm going to struggle through that description, and I'd love your help refining my efforts. Gossips is a good start because they delight in discussion of the trivial and compete for the claim of the best inside scoop. Like most good gossips, they are also pretentious, assuming an air of superiority over those whose stories they relate. And though they make pretentious efforts to seem equal to and deeply sympathetic with the great souls that make the best subjects of their juiciest stories— those efforts are intrusively undermined by the reality of their own commonness. Perhaps I'm a little hard on these ladies, who did shed tears over the sight of the poor suffering recluse. But we are given many other indications that there are limits to the depth of their tenderness, while that of the poor Paquette Chantfleury seems unbounded. How does Hugo convey the petty pretentiousness of the three worthy gossips? First, by the very manner in which they walk, quote, with the gait peculiar to Parisian women showing Paris to their country friends, unquote. Also, before Mahiette begins the sorrowful tale, she makes a point of likening herself in beauty to her story's tragic heroine, and despite the plentiful sighs uttered and tears shed on her behalf, of also blaming her for her own tragedy. Quote, you must know, then, but we need not stand here to tell the tale, that Paquette La Chantfleury was a pretty girl of eighteen when I was one, too. That is to say, some eighteen years ago, and it is her own fault that she is not now, like me, a happy, hale, and hearty mother of six-and-thirty, with a husband and a son." We see the pettiness reflected in Mahiette's desperate effort not to yield superiority to her companions on any count, 
even if it means boasting with a manner of proud defiance, quote, nothing but peasants in the cloth market at Rem. We've seen some very fine criminals there, people who had killed both mother and father, unquote. Gervaise betrays her superficial soul when she expresses her disappointment that the story of Paquette's early suffering is a bit unremarkable for her taste, and her longing instead for the promised scandal of gypsies and stolen children. And Mahiette, who moans despairingly that she does not know what she would do if she, like Paquette, were to lose her precious son, also interrupts the most poignant moments of her story to reprimand him for greedily eyeing the cake. Hugo gives a distinct and palpable reality to his common, everyday characters. And happily, the rare, lofty, extravagant, and heroic souls that populate his novels are no less real. The third of my posts to the Facebook group was called Praise in His Own Image an introduction by Jean-Marc Ovas to The Hunchback of Notre Dame, from the Everyman's Library edition of the novel, begins with these poetic words of praise. Quote, True, there is something strange and marvelous in the talent of this man who sweeps the reader before him as the wind sweeps the leaf, who leads him at will through every place and era, unveils before him as if it were child's play, the heart's innermost recesses, the most mysterious phenomena of nature, and the most obscure pages of history, whose imagination dominates and embraces every other imagination, clothing itself with the same astonishing truth in the rags of the beggar and the robes of the king, taking on every attitude, adopting every garb, speaking every language." leaving the physiognomy of the centuries, whatever in their features the wisdom of God has rendered eternal and immutable, and whatever the folly of humanity in its ephemeral variety has cast upon them. Who does not, as some ignorant novelists do, deck the protagonists of yesteryear in our face paint, nor daub them with the gloss of today, but forces the contemporary reader under the thrall of his magical powers, to reassume for the space of a few hours the spirit of olden times, a spirit held in such low esteem today, like a wise and tactful adviser inviting the ingrate son to return to his father's house. Unquote. But these words were neither written by Ovas nor about the hunchback of Notre Dame. They are a quote from Hugo himself. Hugo was writing about Walter Scott's Quentin Durward for a literary journal he had founded with some of his friends. Given how well it describes Hugo's own first novel, I can only imagine that in his praise of Scott, he was also formulating his personal artistic ambitions. He seems to have been praising Scott in his own image. I thought it might make a fun reflection exercise on the novel thus far to examine how Hugo has achieved each of the lofty literary achievements he praised. If you'd like to try it, identify which of your favorite scenes in the novel satisfy each of his descriptions. I'll share mine in the comments in the Facebook group. I hope you're enjoying this novel as much as I am. Though I have read it before, 
reading it in this context with such careful attention, it might as well be the first time.